Well, this morning, um, I had an interesting experience. We got about five phone calls, texts, and emails from five different families who said, we're not going to make it. We're sick. So, yeah, that was just like last thing right before we left the house. And uh, then I know of about five other ladies who are on a retreat. And uh, I thought, generally, when the wives go away, the husbands don't come to church. So there's another five families. So I thought, okay, ten families are going to be missing. And, and the reason that's important is because this morning I'm so passionate about the, the message God gave me this week, and uh, I really, really am looking forward to it. But I think, I think I heard him right, and he said, save it for next week because I want everyone to hear this. It really, And it's not because Alex is brilliant, but because I think God wants to speak to us as a body. So I'm going to hold off and not share that word. I want to encourage you to come back if you can make it again next Sunday. So I think it's going to be life-changing. It's all about learning to take the Sabbath seriously. And I'll give you a little hint. It's not about one day a week. It's a principle of life. So I really want to encourage you because I think it really is um, pertinent to where our culture is at, where we're at as people right here today. And so um, I remembered back in my mind, Dana Buck said, hey, anytime you need me to step up, I called him at 10 minutes after nine. He was already here. <laughs> he had to go back home to get his notebook. But uh, so Dana, if you haven't listened to him before, has written several stories. And uh, they're kind of like poems, but very, very interesting, deep, and profound insights. And uh, he shared with me the essence of his message this morning. And I just want you to know, I think it's going to be exactly what Jesus had for you today. So can we just say, Dana, we're glad you're part of the church. Come on up here, Dana. Thanks. Yeah, I did make that promise, so, and he's taking me up on it, which is kind of cool. So, I didn't, um, for those of you who have heard me kind of read and speak before, I didn't bring my lamp today. I'm a little upset. I forgot. Well, I didn't have time. I just ran home, grabbed a notebook, and came back, so I'm lampless today, so I'm feeling a little, uh, a little whatever. But, um, so when Alex asked me to share, you know, it's so funny, because you ever notice that sometimes and you never really know, to tell you the truth, but there's different, like, moods on a Sunday. Does anybody notice that? Like, sometimes it just feels super joyful and kind of silly and kind of like the joy of the Lord, and other times it just seems like, man, there's a lot of illness, and Kevin, will, somebody will have a word, and there's healing sometimes. You know, it's, it's just really different. So to see everybody come to the altar, and so I, when Alex asked me to speak, I thought, I have, like, uh, 49 parables that I've written, and so I, okay, i got to pick one. And, uh, you know, they're all themed all kinds of, di all, all differently. And so, um, I, so I grabbed one, and I think I'm glad I grabbed the one that I did. And um, I think it's going to be hopefully a good word for us today. You know, I don't know about you, but because I write, God speaks to me in phrases. When I worked at World Vision, I'm retired. This is my fourth week now of retirement. It's tough. Let me tell you, you never get a day off. It's just brutal. My wife's going to hit me every time I, <laughs> I said something to them, they go, hey, let's go out to breakfast Thursday. Oh, that's right, you work. Um, yeah, yeah. She hit, me with her she hit me with her water bottle, and it's one of those big old metal ones, and kind of hurt, kind of hurt a little bit. Love hurts, doesn't it, honey? Today's our anniversary. She's been putting up with me for 34 years, so that's pretty, that's pretty cool. But God speaks to me, God speaks to me a lot in phrases, and I don't know if, the, I have something that I call, this isn't for everybody, this is for me, maybe it's for you, but I have something that I call the rule of three. 
If I hear something three times from three different sources that are completely unrelated, I'll like go, oh, okay, God, what are you trying to tell me? Anybody else do that? It's like, somebody in there is like, okay, I guess I better pay attention. Um, and so the, the thing that just seems to keep coming up in conversations and the word I feel like the, that God gave me is God returns nothing void. God returns nothing void. God returns nothing was void, empty. God returns nothing empty. All of the circumstances that occur in our lives, God will fill and use. And sometimes it's super hard to see that. Um, sometimes and we may have the privilege and the honor of seeing what he was doing. Sometimes, frankly, we may have to wait till we're in glory with him. And he introduces us to somebody and said, remember that really tough thing that was going on? You have no idea the effect you had on this person, but let me introduce you now. And, and we have to be okay with that. We're not always, you know, sometimes we're the sower and sometimes we're the reaper. We're not always the reaper. Amen? Not always. But we're always the sower. We're always the sower. And what I mean by that is we always have life to give away. We always have truth to give away. And occasionally the return from that scattering of seeds is going to be ours to harvest. And we're going to be able to rejoice over that. Not always, but many times. There's a you know, there's some tough things in Scripture. You know, there's, there's some tough ones you read and you go, ah, you know, love your enemies. That's a tough one. Um, I'll give you another one, book of James. James is my favorite book in the Bible, by the way, because James just, you know, says it like it is. But James says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials. No, I don't want to do that. I don't want to know. That is like just goes against every grain of our being. And when you're in a trial, what do you want? Out. Um, you know, but here's the thing. When you're, knowing that God returns nothing void, if, you're, if and when you're in a trial, shouldn't our prayer be, teach me what you're going to teach me. Do what you're going to do. Do it quickly. You know, that quickly would be great. But, you know, here's the deal. God wants to build us. God wants to do things in our lives. And if we're praying just to get out of there, so here's the deal. Why waste a good trial? You're in it anyway, right? So, why, so if, if all we're doing is scrambling to get out and we don't have our head up seeing what God is doing, well, you know what? If he loves us enough, he's just going to probably do it again because we didn't learn the first time. So rather than our prayer just like, get me out of here, maybe our prayer ought to be, show me what you're going to show me. Do what you're going to do um, in me. There's a lot of people up at the altar today. I guarantee you, I was going to run the drums. I could have dropped my sticks and come up here. Any of us could have come up here. Man, if you're here and you don't have anything to play for the Lord, hey, that's awesome. But any of us could have come up here. We've all got something that we're carrying. We've all got something that we're walking through. And why? Because God is building up a testimony in us. He's building up a testimony in us, and he's building up a testimony through us in others. Um, I'm gonna, I haven't asked her permission to say this, but my friend Cleo LaRoche inspires me every day. Every day. Um, for what you walk through and... Just seeing Cleo tire shoes will inspire you. Um, God could have miraculously healed Cleo. God could have miraculously healed Cleo now if he chose to. But I think, I often think about how many people would have been touched by a miraculous healing that might have happened 20 years ago and how many people have been touched and continue to be touched by somebody that walks faithfully through trial and doesn't even treat it as a trial and counts it all joy. Um, it's amazing, and I love you, and you're an awesome, 
You're an awesome, awesome, awesome person. I'm going, to share, I'm going to share a story with you. And so I'm thinking about this thing, that God returns nothing void, that God uses our trials. There are lots of stories in Scripture that help to illustrate that point. And the story I want to talk to you about, it's a little smidgy story. It's in three of the four Gospels. It's a little smidgen of a story that's frankly sandwiched between a couple of pretty amazing things. And there was a woman in a town that Jesus was visiting, and this woman had an affliction, a 12-year affliction. She bled. And um, you, it doesn't say it, but you infer that the bleeding was menstrual bleeding and it was out of control. It wasn't like a, it was a monthly period. It was she constantly bled. And if you know anything about Jewish culture at that time, if a woman was bleeding, she was considered unclean. No, anyone that would touch her or be with her would be also considered unclean as well. This woman that bled for 12 years was denied society for those 12 years. She had to shut herself away. This is not, it's not in the story. The story is only a couple of, a couple of verses. But if you understand the backstory of what that woman was going through, the intense isolation, some of the gospels give a little bit more detail than others. She had spent all of her money trying to be cured and no one could cure her. Um, a hopeless situation. And then she heard this rabbi was coming through town who had a reputation to heal. Um, Twelve years of walking through that issue. Um, and why? Well, let's hear a story and see if we can figure it out. All right? Sound good? All right. So this story, see if my book's right side up. It isn't. <laughs> should put cover on this thing. This story is called The Touch. Luke 8, 43, 44. And a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him, meaning Jesus, and touched the edge of his cloak. The early morning rays of sun appear for all to catch, warming up the rooftops, most composed of tile or thatch. A single figure hurries nigh, and so our tale begins. There, moving through the narrow streets, a boy, wiry and thin. His movement seems so purposeful, his urgency a tell. Upon his shoulder sits a jar of water from the well. He rushes single-minded like a man escaped from prison, for normally he does this chore before the sun has risen. If he's seen, derision and embarrassment unfurl because he labors at a task performed by women and girls. He scolds himself for sleeping late. His indolence is cussed, not here by urge or whim or choice, but here because he must. This task is for his mother, now a widow many years, and all of them defined by isolation and by tears. Her suffering is silent, but he knows the pain she bears. For he alone lives with her in their room beneath the stairs. A slow, persistent bleeding is what renders her unseen by Pharisaic custom that has labeled her unclean. No friendships, no companions, all her social bonds recanted, denied the simple pleasures other women take for granted. His rife responsibilities are like a burden worn for her ill condition started on the day that he was born. Discounted and pitied for the portion life has brought her, 
It falls to him to fetch their food, their firewood, their water. He earns some coins of copper at the stable, cleaning stalls, while she laments within her world defined by her four walls. He turns the final corner, makes a beeline for the door, thankful that their neighbors haven't started morning chores. Entering, he sets the water by the wall for storage and then ambles to the table for a morning bowl of porridge. His mother sets a steaming bowl and piece of bread before him and plants a kiss upon his head, so proud and thankful for him. She asks him, what's the weather like? It's not too windy, is it? Your great Aunt Ruth should come today to make her monthly visit. It's hard to tell this early. Starved, he answers between bites. He knows his aunt's appointments are her one and best respite. Well, I dearly hope she makes the trip, her anxiousness revealing. Perhaps she found a doctor who can bring about my healing. He tries to hide a heaving sigh. This search for diagnosis has only led to futile cures, placebos in large doses. Quacks and seers and healers with assurances so sunny that only leave despondency and cost them all their money. He does admire her fortitude, her never giving in. The hopefulness she always finds brings some hopefulness to him. She tidies up the breakfast plates. He stokes and banks the fire. Then mother sits as her condition causes her to tire. When in a blink and all at once the quiet house erupts, as great Aunt Ruth's, hello, my dears, rings out and fills it up. Oh, my, oh, my, the roads, the dust, the awful smell, she rants. Caleb, don't just sit there. Shake a leg and help your aunt. He chuckles as he moves his feet and hurries towards the door. A voice decree from great Aunt Ruth is not to be ignored. (laughs) Oh, my boy, you've grown so tall, she gives his nose a tweak and hugs him and deposits a wet kiss upon his cheek. He takes the several bags that she has hanging from her arms, while his mother buoyed and brightened by her aunt's boisterous charms. I brought some meat and vegetables. I thought that you could stew them in some clean cloths for Rachel, dear. I know how you go through them. Mother thanked her shyly, eyes cast down and growing wetter. Great Aunt Ruth inquired, are you feeling any better? No change, she said, then added in a brave attempt to cope. But God has not forgotten me. With God, there's always hope. It's funny you should mention having faith and trust in God, for I have news of something rather interesting and odd. It seems there is a rabbi who has burst upon the scene. He's made quite a reputation for himself, this Nazarene. Oh, the stories that we're hearing. He turned water into wine and cast a host of demons right into a group of swine. The bridegroom was ecstatic with the wine. He flipped his wig, but not so much the farmer with his herd of demon pigs. (laughs) Be that as it may, the miracle most people see is the healing of the sick. This seems to be his specialty. These words caught her attention. Caleb's mother said, oh dear, Aunt Ruth, will this new rabbi ever come and pass by here? Who can tell? She touches Rachel's anxious face and stills it. I only know, my darling, it will happen if God wills it. Listening intently, Caleb feels his anger rise, for he sees the hope and desperation in his mother's eyes. How many times must vain belief and wishing be rehashed, raising expectations just to see them cruelly dashed? 
Bitterly, he utters in a voice annoyed and nervous, what's this enchanted rabbi's compensation for this service? How many silver coins will guarantee his magic trick? Does he extract a rabbit from his hat, then heal the sick? Aunt Ruth inclined her head and moved to where her nephew stood. Young man, your ire and sarcasm don't do us any good. I know you've witnessed countless efforts just to see them fail. It's hard to let your optimism and your hope prevail. But God is not uncaring, and he doesn't need reminding. He consummates his purpose by his will and in his timing. Caleb, in his cross demeanor, made her poor heart ache. We must hang on to faith, if only for your mother's sake. I love you, dear Aunt Ruth, and heaven knows I love my mother. His negative emotions he then tried to check and smother. I didn't mean to mock your faith, commit a mortal sin, but neither can I just stand by and see her hurt again. This rabbi may be above board, his power may be legit, or he could be another fake, another counterfeit. Either way, I won't be part of it. His heart felt like tan leather. If God has got a miracle, let him put it together. With that, young Caleb kissed Aunt Ruth and closed the door behind him. His mother said, that breaks my heart. It's guilt that so maligned him. He blames himself for my complaint. It steals his sense of worth and thinks a curse was allocated to me through his birth. Why can't I make him understand it's not to do with sin? And to have him as my son, I'd gladly do it all again. Both women pause in stillness at this mother's sacred truth. And then Rachel's tears are gathered in the arms of great Aunt Ruth. In turbulence and contemplation, Caleb walks the streets, his mind a troubled battlefield where faith and fear compete. How can he feel a thing for God or glorify his name when the one he loves most still lives in unrelenting pain? How many times has he requested all that's foul and grim would evacuate his mother and instead descend on him? He sees his path as paved with apathy, failure, and bareness completely lacking happiness, a touch of grace or fairness. His wandering soon brings him to a low wall made of stone. He sits to rest his weary feet and think these thoughts alone. It's then a voice behind the wall, hellos, this lull aside, a seated man there leans against it on the other side. Not wanting conversation, Caleb rises somewhat shaken, I apologize, I didn't know this quiet spot was taken. The man's reply, it startled him to his frustrated core. It's okay, I think that you're who I've been waiting for. Caleb's furrowed brow communicated his confusion. This man, he thought, must labor under some kind of illusion. I'm sorry, sir, for you must have me mixed up with another. That's so, replied the man. Then tell me, just how is your mother? You know my mother? Cautious and suspiciously, he asked, seeking now to see this puzzling transient unmasked. Not personally, the man replied. I can't say that she's known. I only am aware of her through things I have been shown. What things? asked Caleb, very nearly faint and overcome, not sure if he should seat himself or turn and blindly run. I've seen a suffering woman. I don't even know her name. I've also seen her son, who has assumed misguided blame. I've seen a cry for healing, and 
proper restoration, seen years of felt abandonment, despondency, frustration. I've seen faith sorely tested, seen conviction bruised and broken, seen confidence evaporate, heard muttered curses spoken. This cavalcade of heartbreak passed before the Father's view. He showed it all to me so I could tell it all to you. Caleb slowly sat upon that wall of hardened stone. Why would God to you these images and narrative make known? Are you some kind of prophet, a clairvoyant divinator, special messenger from heaven, a divine prognosticator? How can you relate these details you can't possibly have seen? What do you know of existence that's been labeled as unclean? A knowing laugh ascended from the far side of the wall as the man got to his feet and then stood up, clear-eyed and tall. You parcel out your words as if they were a bitter tonic. And the question if I grasp unclean? I find that so ironic. <laughs> Not long ago, my life was misery. My reason, dormant. I lived among the tombstones, knowing only pain and torment. I cut myself with sharpened stones. I howled and moaned and cackled and could not be restrained no matter how firmly I was shackled. I curried fear and terror, was despised throughout the region, and held unholy darkness that I only knew as legion. If a man were ever saddled with rank impurity, a helpless, hopeless circumstance, that wretched man was me. Yet deep inside I never lost my hope, for saving grace, and daily cried to God to bring me from that awful place. Caleb sat there blinking, overwhelmed by what he'd heard. Awestruck, he whispered, tell me, how your break, did it occur? A man arrived by boat. I didn't know him, what he does, but those who lurked inside of me, they all knew who he was. I sensed their apprehensiveness and fear and controversy, they all addressed him, son of man, and then cried out for mercy. He spoke of his authority, in his authority with forcefulness and clout, and in the name of God Most High, he made them all come out. Recognition came to Caleb as his memory revolved. Tell me, with these demons, was there somehow pigs involved? The man began to laugh, a pleasant sound to take to heart. How come those who know this story only seem to know that part? <laughs> yes, my Savior cast those demons in a nearby herd of swine, and I was free and spotless in my spirit, heart, and mind. Caleb Thoughtful said, I'm glad things turned out well for you, but that's no explanation why you know the things you do. The man sat next to Caleb. Well, I really must confess, I'm not completely certain, but I think that I can guess. Whatever brings your mother pain, he stated with assertion, it must have bred long suffering and feelings of desertion. I know that when my body and my mind were so invaded, I doubted God had heard my desperate cries, and I felt jaded. But now I see my season as a wretch and a pariah, was used by God to demonstrate the power of the Messiah. I think that God, who caused my final healing to occur, he also sees your mother and will do the same in her. The man then paused and heaved a sigh. His voice grew low and warm. I'm also here for you. 
and he touched Caleb on the arm. You've forgotten God's steadfastness to those unkind and phony and just needed a reminder from an honest testimony. Caleb dropped his head, stirring emotions growing stronger. Well, God had better hurry, because I can't hold on much longer. With that, the man stood up and said, I pray you'll soon rejoice, and left Caleb gently weeping in the echoes of his voice. Great Aunt Ruth prepared herself to rise and take her leave. Remember, dear, next time I'll bring some wool and we can weave. Rachel, thankful for their time, was fending off her pain, knowing there'd be weeks before Aunt Ruth could come again. Walking to the door, Aunt Ruth embraced her stricken niece. I'm praying for you, dear, that your affliction will soon cease. In the meantime, I'll send word, no hesitation or delay, if I hear the healing rabbi makes a journey down this way. Then moving across the threshold and beyond the open door, her great Aunt Ruth leaves Rachel, just as lonely as before. Well, in the days and weeks that pass, mother and son press on ahead, with Caleb tasked with earning coins to buy their fish and bread. One morning he arises from the scanty breakfast table and tells his mother he has work today down at the stable. Be careful, she admonishes and wraps him in his coat, then watched him walk away with her emotions in her throat. Oh God, please keep my boy. He carries such a heavy load. I see his growing angst and fear one day he will explode. I ask nothing for myself. My expectations have grown dim. My entreaty is for Caleb. God, please show yourself to him. With the house now to herself, she tidied up as best she could, poured a basin full of water on a table of rough wood. Preparing now to bathe, she piled her clothes upon the floor and saw that mocking stain she'd seen a thousand times before. Stoically, she finished in that room as stark as truth and wrapped herself in linen binding brought by great Aunt Ruth. Tired and with feelings raw, she lay down on her bed as melancholy took its turn while hope and courage bled. A clatter from the doorstep disconnects her from her nap for someone's loudly calling through a very insistent rap. She gathers her awareness, runs her fingers through her hair, and hurries across the room to see who's loudly knocking there. Opening the door, a girl is standing on the stoop with sparkling hazel eyes and braided hair done up in loops. I'm sorry to disturb you, but I'm here to share a message. I promised I would memorize and recite every vestige. A woman gave me silver coins and set my feet to running and tell you that she says the healing rabbi, he is coming. The ruler of the synagogue, his little girl is sick. He asked the Nazarene to come to town and come on quick. He's trailing just behind me, said the girl, small and petite. The woman said his entourage would walk right up this street. I don't know what this means, but she insisted that I blab it. Rachel, dear, your chance has come. Make sure you firmly grab it. With that, the little urchin did a curtsy, turned and ran, holding two bright silver coins tucked in her joyous hands. A bolt of pure adrenaline cascades through Rachel's body. She looks down at her clothing, faded dull, threadbare, and shoddy. I cannot meet the rabbi wearing this past-mending dress, but I haven't many options. Nothing better, I confess. But then a thought transforms her mood to Mary from a mourner. 
as her eyes rest on a dusty trunk shoved back into a corner. She rushes to that doleful chest, forsaken and forgotten, and searches with her fingers to find something at the bottom. Scattering the contents, making quite a hurried mess, she stands and lifts the garment that was once her wedding dress. Holding this soft relic from a life she knew before, so affected she can barely feel her feet upon the floor. Two days made me so happy, one when I became a mother, and when I was a bride, she said, oh yes, that is the other. Her heart is filled with sentiment. She struggles to compose, then controlling her exuberance, she quickly changed her clothes. The last part of her outfit is a shawl, white, trimmed in red. She draped it round her shoulders, pulled it up atop her head. She knows the risk she's taking, leaving home where things are private, for she's gambling on a plan and very well may not survive it. Because I am unclean, no contact may there ever be. I must not touch the rabbi, and the rabbi can't touch me. For if we did, he'd be required to pause and purify, keeping him from healing, and that girl would surely die. I must devise a way to this my whole life condenses, for I've seen women stripped in stone for much lesser offenses. If he's endowed with power to regenerate and heal, perhaps it isn't limited to hands, what he can feel. If I can gain proximity and not be caught, condemned, I'll barely brush his garment. I'll just touch his robe. It's him. One slight caress, one grazing of a sleeve or fold or cuff. I have faith that this accomplishment will be enough. Whispering amen, she slightly cracked open the door and stood with watching eye to take the chance she's waited for. The sound of many voices soon came wafting to her ear. She swallowed hard, denying her uneasiness and fear. Stepping through the door with her bright shawl about her head, she saw the nearing crowd and felt a heightened sense of dread, for this was not a party moving up the street in peace, but a roiling mob of followers, 100 men at least. Her heart beats like an anvil, but her steps light as a feather as she slips into the sunshine with a whispered, now or never. She can barely see the rabbi through the shawl used to disguise her. It's her one and only safeguard from the men who would despise her. She hears the man whose daughter lingers at the point of death, exhorting him to hurry with each apprehensive breath. With weaving steps, she navigates, maneuvers through the crowd. Her eyes don't leave her quarry, even though her head is bowed. The throng is paused. The narrow street is filled right to the top. The press of people causing the parade to slow and stop. Now, she thinks, the mob is concentrated to its core. This is the golden moment and the chance I've waited for. She's at the rabbi's back, but several men move in to screen him. So dropping to her knees, she shoves a trembling arm between them. Flailing in the emptiness, she only feels the air, and her mind begins to fill with a descending cold despair. It's then she thinks of Caleb and his spirit decomposing. She cries aloud, determined to embrace the rabbi's clothing. Powered by a mother's love, no obstacle can stem. Her fingertips touch fabric, and they close around the hem. 
Immediately she feels as if she's been struck by lightning. The sensation is so peaceful, not discomforting or frightening. And suddenly she knows to the foundation of her soul that her body has been healed. What was broken is now whole. God had not forgotten her. She felt him even now, like the keeping of a promise, like the fulfilling of a vow. I'm free, she thought, free from that malady that fiercely clutched me. But joy turned into terror when she heard, somebody touched me. The very air around her seemed to concentrate and freeze as she tried to be invisible down there upon her knees. She heard another voice say, well, of course you have been touched. We're lucky in this mob not to be pulverized or crushed. No, she heard the rabbi say, it wasn't folks congealing. Someone sought this rendezvous specifically for healing. Suddenly the crowd went silent. Everyone stepped back, exposing Rachel in the center of the milling pack. Men soon recognized her and their stern expressions shone while others bent to fill their hands with jagged rocks and stones. Rabbi, please have mercy. Her entreaty broke the stillness. She quickly told him all about her long contest with illness. I knew I couldn't touch you. I would not make that mistake. I also knew that just your robe, my affliction could break. So now I kneel before you here in the dust and dirt and clod and testify that I've been healed by one who's sent by God. Everyone just held their breath and all looked for a clue, especially the Pharisees. What would the rabbi do? What he did was broadly smile and raise her from her knees. Daughter, faith has made you well. May you now go in peace. With a nod, he turned, continued down that road of sand, and the only sound was falling stones released by humbled hands. The day of Rachel's healing, now a week or so ago, had brought great changes to her life and set her once dim heart aglow. She traveled to the synagogue and by a priest was seen who verified the miracle, proclaiming she was clean. She now is free to visit with the women at the well, to whom she is a hero. What a story she can tell. The greatest gift that she acquired throughout this act of grace was the staggered, happy, thankful, love-filled look on Caleb's face. This morning on her countenance, she wears a little smirk as Caleb bolts his breakfast and prepares to go to work. She stops him in his tracks when she and Joy has this to say, You've got a little trip to make. There'll be no work today. Don't worry about the stables or the coins we may be missing. I've taken in some sewing, so your job will be dismissing. It's time for you to study, spend some time with learned men, and also run and jump and play and be a boy again. She saw the look of gratitude, the smile upon his face, and he wrapped her in a bear hug, an affectionate embrace. And now about that trip, I want you very much to take. It's more than just a visit, it's a pilgrimage you'll make. My rabbi, he is teaching on the hill outside of town. And I want you to attend and know the Savior I have found. I packed you up a lunch. It's not as fancy as I'd wish. Just five small barley loaves and two leftover fresh-caught fish. 
Handing him the bag, which he then hung around his neck, she walked him to the door and gave his rosy cheek a peck. As he departed, she called out, responding to a hunch, if others there are hungry, please be sure to share your lunch. A few liberties were taken and a few other characters introduced, but I encourage you to go home and read that story um, because it is sandwiched right in between the healing of the, of the man that was tormented by um, the demons called Legion and the feeding of the 5,000. It's just a little two, line, uh, two lines in there, but how powerful is that? Um, to know that even our afflictions especially our afflictions, God uses to his glory. God returns nothing void. God returns nothing void. No matter what you may be walking in today, large or small, um, God knows, God's in it, God will see you through it, and God will glorify himself through it. What a privilege to be God's instrument as he demonstrates his love and his compassion and his power to a broken world. Amen? Amen, amen. amen. Everyone, go in peace. Have a great Sunday.